Welcome back. This has been uh, a long summer, and I know you all listening have been anxiously awaiting the the epic drop of season two of Author News Weekly. Um, I am not the host. RA is not going to be the host on this episode um, because there's been some changes. Nothing bad. We didn't kick him off the show. We didn't fire him. Jim did have some words with him, but we didn't fire him. We're not allowed to say where RA is right now. Yeah, it's it's sort of a it's a thing. It's a whole thing. So, listeners, um, I'm Nick. You know me. Um, I'm on the show as the curmudgeonly old man who's always dissing on uh, British people and my readers, uh, which I will continue in this season of Author News Weekly. But I wanted to introduce uh, a, a close personal friend of mine who will be hosting uh, for the next 37 years. I think was the contract. Um, sorry, did you get the contract? We signed it on your behalf. Um, Roland Denzel is a friend of mine. He lives up in, in, well, I can't tell. It's a whole, you know, another whole thing. He's not allowed to say. Um, but he is a, he is a, a publish, publishing and indie author. Um, I, I don't want to say the word guru because I hate that word. But you, and you've, you've been around the block, man. You know the ins and outs of this industry as good as anyone else. And I believe you've been on the show before, but we found out that it had never been aired before. So this is sort of, this is cool. This is like, you know. Yeah, I don't know what I said to keep it off the air, but. <laughs> it, it's, well, we're about, yeah, we're about to run it back and find out. So uh, anyway. Man, yeah, where well, you and RA are. Um, yeah. So welcome to the show. Thanks for being here and hosting us. I'm going to turn it over to Roland uh, now to, uh, to to introduce. Well, you don't have to introduce us. We, we can do all this future episodes. But if you're just joining us now, this is your first time. Um, you're not going to get the full intro because it's going to make everything too long and weird, but I'm Nick. I'm here with Jim. We've got Pippa and yeah. of course now our new host Roland. So welcome thank, to the show. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. It's, it's great to be here. Yeah. Roland Denzel. If you, uh, you probably see me around and I uh, hope to see you all around even more. Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah. So we're not going to do introductions. I knew you already. You always do. Yeah, we're, we're we'll, we'll, we'll do it next today. week. We want to. Oh right. wait, wait. There's one thing I have to do first, and it's this. What? That's the news intro, by the way. Wow. Traditionally, we don't do it at, at a reasonable <laughs> time. Or... Traditionally, the cue doesn't work. <laughs> oh. oh well. Let's let's hope it translated to to the audio. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, everybody. Um, yeah, I wanted to jump right into like one of the things that I've seen around. Uh, it's been shared in a lot of groups recently on Facebook and on Twitter. And it's an article that talks about the big news that Barnes & Noble is not going to be stocking as many hardback books or as many middle grade books. And it gets a little bit into, I think a lot of people are misinterpreting it based on like the opening parts as they're just not going to stock books or they're not going to stock indie books or, or whatever. But if you if, um, if you read into it, James Daunt, the CEO, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, has you know, the last couple of years implemented some policies where they're really trying to look at what sells and what doesn't. And um, shocker, trying to stock books in their stores that actually sell and people are getting can i say butthurt on the show uh, you just did folks. people are getting butthurt both on the indie side and on the traditional side on the traditional side what do you what do y'all think about this well i for one support barnes and noble's commitment to actually selling books at this point 
that seems so that's a nice change of pace maybe they'll make their website more searchable too discoverable yeah. <laughs> let's not get ahead of ourselves <laughs> Well, to be fair, their bobbleheads and things that they sell do usually have words on the packages, so we can read those. <laughs> I I heard this uh, over on Twitter, which unsurprisingly takes a different tack most of the times with um, with any anything, including you know news like this. I agree with Pippa. I think um, Barnes and Noble seems to be kind of homing 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 in on on their hey, we actually sell books. Let's do more of that kind of message, and this is. Potentially unfortunate for the authors who, you know, won't be stocked in hardcover, but largely better for authors because they're going to, the idea is to sell more books. Um, I don't know how much we need to go into the Twitter side of things, but the, the claim that I saw was that this was a racist move by Barnes and Noble. I don't know if you guys had seen that. I, I mean, I did see that. It, it makes any of these, so it's based on very sound psychology. The less options you have, the more people are going to buy. Um, not, it doesn't go all the way down to zero, but there is too much choice. Uh, there's a point of too much choice. But like most of these changes, because of the way the publishing industry works, it is going to much more disadvantage newer authors and authors from historically marginalized groups. It just is. From a percentage, um, from a percentage yeah. basis, right? Yeah, it's, and that's not, I mean, that's partially because the way publishing assesses, traditional publishing assesses sellability is completely borked. Um, so that's not necessarily Barnes and Noble's fault, but I mean, there was a reason that a whole bunch of demographics took off when self-publishing came in because We'd been told for years that certain things wouldn't sell, and it turned out they do. <laughs> right, you, Jim. This is really all very completely opposite of what I thought was going to happen. Uh, I don't know if I ever made this prediction on the show, but I really thought, I thought that the trade paperback, the the middle class of books, was going to evaporate, and you were going to have eBooks on the affordability scale, and then you would have hardbacks for the collectors, and that trade paperbacks were just going to go away. But it appears that that's not what's happening. Um, and Daunt is doing a very smart thing by saying, hey, let's stop returning so many unused books and uh, just, you know, buy cheap, if we want bulk, buy cheaper paperbacks. And for the hardbacks, um, just buy the ones that are going to sell. And I find it's very curious that that hardback middle grade books are selling so well. Um, I don't know, is that from teachers buying editions for schools that they want to last a few years is it for parents trying to instill a love of reading in their kids by giving them books made with cardboard instead of paper i don't know i'm not sure That's isn't that up. the category that he said they were going to stock stop stocking as much yeah up? stop less of oh less of i misunderstood that then yeah <clears throat> oh. to, to your point though jim like i i think trade i mean we, we all know trade Trade books are cheaper to print than hardback books. And therefore, um, it's not necessarily true that there's more margin, more profit margin in trade. While that's true for me, um, it may not be true for these guys, you know, shooting out thousands and thousands of copies of, of, of hardback books. But I think to the, to the end user, if you're just looking for a book, 
and you don't like ebooks for whatever reason, you don't want to, you don't do the ebook thing and you don't want to shell out $35 for a hardback book, the trade still makes sense. So I think you're right that we're seeing, you know, more people who are going to books are saying, I just, I just want the trade paperback. I don't want to spend $30 on something I, I may not like, um, or to have as a collector's item. What I'm, what I'm noticing, or maybe this has already happened, but it seems like the mass market uh, industry is, is shrinking quite a bit. Like I don't see mm-hmm. even those bargain book bins at the back of grocery stores by the pharmacy section where it's like dark and they don't keep the lights on, you know, um, <laughs> those are like even hardback books that were printed, you know, 20 years ago and just sit on the shelves. I, you don't even see the walk into what was the old, it was, you walk into the nickel, the dime store or whatever, and there'd be like a rack of mass market paperbacks. Mm-hmm. Um, they just don't do that as much anymore. And I'm wondering if it's because everything's just sort of consolidating once again to back to trade. And then of course, because you have ebook and then of course, every now and then there's a vanity version, which is hardback. I mean, you got to think that because it seems obvious that ebook should be the most profitable, uh, you know, in a way to circumvent the supply chain, there's got, these bookstores must have, they must have some way that they're making money on the shipping and they're making money on the stocking is the only reason why there's the only reason why they, they they're sticking to these traditional outdated sales methods has got to be, they're making money on it somehow. And absolutely. And well, that's just the thing, right? Like we, and we know that the, in the industry, these bookstores and, and retail chains can send their books back at no cost to themselves. They don't even have to pay shipping. The publisher has to handle that or the distributor. Mm-hmm. And um, which is wild to me because it's the only product I can think of that that's true. Um, you know, and I think there's definitely a, like a, a good old boys club. There's some gen- gentlemen's club going on with, with trade publishers and retailers, which is you know how it's always been. And I've always said this kind of tongue in cheek, but I really do think it's true. Publishers aren't in the business of selling books. They're in the business of selling dead trees. Um, there's just such a large, in, you know, um, infrastructure that's been there for 200 years now of printing dead trees and then selling them to people that to, to the upheaval of not doing that anymore and going to ebooks would not just destroy these publishers, but the retail chain that relies on them as well. Yeah, and to to say that publishers do not sell to consumers, publishers sell to bookstores. That's their their market, and so a lot of the distortions that you see that you're like, why are you pushing this? Why are you doing? It? Makes a lot more sense if you view that as and, the. And I think that's right, Pippi. Very good point. I think that's why a lot of the so many books get returned from the bookstore back to the publisher, because the publisher does a great job of selling the book buyer of the, of the store hey your people are gonna you're gonna you need to stock this for all these different reasons so they buy a bunch of them put them in all the stores but then when it doesn't resonate with readers they just sit there and before six months are up they're like oh we better send these things back and um yeah and that shows up on the uh the author's bottom line Sometimes as a negative, because sometimes the environmentally conscious authors sometimes say, well, I want them to be shipped back and returned. I'm willing to mm-hmm. pay for that. They don't realize that if every store bought two books and they ship those two books back, that is one shipping cost for every store. So you could have like 400 right. stores, $10 shipping each. That could, that could be like way more than that. You actually actually paid for the books to begin with. And they're not shipping them back in solar powered electric cars either. I mean... No, no, they're sh- know, they're shipping them back to they're <laughs> shipping them back to the warehouse, and then the warehouse. Well, right. what do you want us to do with these? Do you want us to ship them to you if you're an indie author, right. or do you want us to ship them to the publisher if you're a traditionally published author? 
Yeah, it's yeah. not good. So I, I think no matter what the motive is, I think people are upset mostly because there's this, A, there's a dream of seeing your book in a bookstore, which I've had to, right? I've, I was blessed to see my book in a bookstore, but a lot of them came back. So I had it, got a negative, right? And then, so it is sort of a dream to be able to go into Barnes and Noble and like, oh my gosh, take a picture. Take your book and put it in the bookstore and just leave it there. Or I would never do that, but why? Um, it's like we're really dealing. <laughs> but but see, here's the thing: is that people think that if authors think that if their book is in a bookstore, that's that's their shot, like that's yeah. their chance. Like if and if it doesn't make it to the bookstore, they're not going. Their book is not going to make it. And I feel like that's such a small part of it. If your book's not going to make it, it's not going to make it if it went to the bookstore, right? Right. Unless it has a ton of marketing behind it, and your book two copies or 10, even 10 copies of your book showing up in Barnes and Noble is not enough to do it unless your publisher also paid to put it on the front table or you get a lot of buzz and people are coming in looking for it because very few people go into the bookstore and find a brand new author in that back rack somewhere. The odds are just so low. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Wow. So now that we're all depressed. I know. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't want to say that it's like a positive that you shouldn't, that you're not in the bookstore, but I mean, it's like if, if somebody wants to be in the bookstore and your best shot at being in the bookstore is to make a relationship with your local bookstore, even if it's a Barnes and Noble, because Barnes and Nobles often have a place or will allow local authors to be in there, at least for a trial period. So mm -hmm. If you want your book to be in a bookstore, you want to have your Instagram moment with it or your book talk moment with your book in the bookstore, I think that's a great way to go. And because you're local, you're actually more likely to sell it because you can tell your your local fans that it's there and yeah. hopefully they'll go buy it and that'll like chain reaction. There, there's a guy here in Colorado Springs. I don't know if he's still around, but um, many years ago, beginning of kind of indie publishing, uh, he wrote a book call i can't remember what it's called actually i should find it but it's very good it's about how he he sells in person at barnes and noble specifically um and at the time borders and all that but he would go in and he, he develops a relationship with the, with the manager of the store and he he says i'm going to be here and he actually stands up the whole day and people walk in and he's like you know hawking his book at people as they you know come in the door and it works and, and he sells really well and so I, I reached out to him and i was like hey I'm, I'm thinking about doing this here in town like you know you're here in town as well um so I know that you're talking about the two Barnes and Nobles that we have in town. And he was like, oh, don't go to the one by the, you know, by this mall. And I was like, oh, why not? And he's like, oh, the manager hates indies. Absolutely hates indies. You'll never get in there. Uh, the other one's great. So it does depend on the, on the Barnes and Noble. It does depend on the location and the person who's actually getting you in there. Um, which I just, I think is insane. I think it's absurd. I'm like, it's a book. I, what, yeah. What is this taboo against, you know, I did it myself and, got more than 10 cents per copy so therefore I, i'm not worthy so you must be punished yeah but <laughs> i guess that is a good segue into um books that only sell a dozen copies right roland yeah you've all heard of Pen penguin random house right simon and schuster mm -hmm. and you know about the big uh the big merger that may or so. may not happen right are these are these companies these businesses yeah <laughs> they're part of the big five possibly the big four and the part that somebody said is well that if these two merge, it's almost like it's going to be so big that it'll be the big one and the other three won't matter. Mm -hmm. um, but that's for another article. Um, this particular one, 
it's interesting because during the there's a trial the department of justice has taken you know penguin random house to trial to to sort of to stop this merger or to at least look at whether the merger should be stopped and the most interesting parts to me are the weird statements and reactions from from the publishing companies themselves now we don't know how much of it is they're trying to obfuscate the situation to use to use a big i don't hate to be condescending and talk or talk down to you but um you know obfuscate confuse muddle the situation but they're saying they're they're making very bold statements like you don't have to worry about this merger because the biggest danger is indie authors and here's brandon sanderson that sold 40 million dollars and like like that's the biggest danger if all if all the indies do that, we're you know you know. And didn't one of the CEO the CEO of Random House was was on the stand or whatever it's called and mm -hmm. and said we don't actually know what how to sell books. It's all random. That's why we're the Random House. Oh, <laughs> I, I think that's a direct quote. I believe that's a direct quote. Yeah, I don't know that he used the Random House thing, but I hope he did. I'm I think he did. I'm gonna I'll look it up. While yeah, you keep talking. I'll look it up. I'm pretty yeah. sure that's a direct quote. So in this article, it's a it's Substack, it's counter countercraft, a uh, uh, Lincoln Mitchell, Michelle, Lincoln Michelle. I don't know how to pronounce it, the, the last name there, but my apologies, Lincoln. Um, but one of the interesting statistics that was said by the by one of the CEOs was that most 50% of books sell 12 copies or less than 12 copies. And that just sounds astonishing. 50% of traditionally published books, right? So the books, because they don't, they act like indie books don't really exist. Yes. Yeah. And so some of these statistics were, were, were just, you know, were just crazy. Like, what do you, have you read any of the, this thing? And what do you think about this? Let's see. I, I, I tried to read it and it told me that I need to sign up. So, oh, well, I'll, I'll say this, that ever since you scroll down, you don't have to, okay. I'll say this ever since data guy sold out and went corporate. I don't trust any of the numbers <laughs> that I see in publishing. Obviously nobody knows what they're talking about. Everybody's saying something different and with publishing, there's always that thing of, does it, do the numbers include textbooks or not? Because anytime the publishing industry talks about how well they're doing, they're including their textbook numbers. And it's a completely different thing and it completely messes up all the numbers, but I I don't trust any of these numbers. I don't, yeah, 12 books a year sounds ridiculously low. Companies could, you know, it costs thousands of dollars to produce a book. So if most of them only sold 12 copies, I don't think that publishing is quite following the same Hollywood model, you know, Hollywood model that 95% of movies are going to lose money, but the ones that do make money make everybody rich. Um, I don't think publishing is quite that uh, into gambling, but I just don't know if I could trust any of these numbers. Well, I think oh, from, the Hollywood, uh, from the Hollywood side, I think that there's a lot of like the, of those movies that didn't make money. They made money for somebody. They just didn't make money. For, like So like if you, you know, they made money somehow, but or otherwise they wouldn't be worth making. I don't know that it's but I, but I do think that there's something to that, Jim, where where there is this ratio they're like okay we can afford to gamble on this one because we don't know it's almost like some of these books they they might put out thinking well they're probably not going to work but it's sort of a feeler to see if it's going to well it's like work. penny stocks right i mean for a while it was we're going to have a huge mid list in order to 
find the next Harry Potter. And then for a while it was like, we're only going to publish things we think are going to be Harry Potter. And so the midlist started to shrink and shrink and shrink. Uh, so um, I actually, I, I actually have this book uh, written by Mike Shatskin, whose dad, father, um, kind of ushered in some of the ways that publishing uh, works. And so Mike is, is in the industry today and he wrote this book pretty recently. So it's still up to date, I believe, but Jim, he basically says that that's exactly what they do. You know, I don't know the the 95% or whatever the number is, but he, he literally talks about the profit and loss statement being something that editors just throw around and it's totally just arbitrary. They just put numbers on a page and no one's actually trying to hit that number or not. This is per book, per acquisition. Um, and he says, if you were to add up all these losses from all the thousands of books that we publish a year, um, on paper, it's like it doesn't make sense how a publishing company stays afloat. But he said, it's basically that the the ongoing accruals of these books that didn't earn out their advance continue to make money enough so that they wait around for the big, you know, the Harry Potters of the world, and that keeps them in the money. Um, and I'm I'm totally like, you know, cannibalizing his point, but it it it, it is the Hollywood model um, with less. Uh, specificity, I think. Um, and to go back to the quote that I, I said, this is uh, Marcus Dole is the head of Penguin Random House. And um, he's describing on the, st on the stand, he's describing the, the difficulty of predicting success. Um, and uh, this is his quote. He said, everything is random in publishing. That's why we have that name. So the founder thought everything is random. Success is random. Bestsellers are random. So that's why we are the Random House. Wow. So this trial, and I'm following it pretty closely. Um, you know, I work with Drafted Digital, and and that's something that we we discuss a lot. And um, this trial is so in, insane to me because it, it's put the the publishing industry. Their defense is, and I don't even want to say like it, it accidentally became this way. Like I think they specifically chose the defense of we're incompetent. We don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Um, we have we're not no dangerous. idea how we're any incompetent. of this work. How can we be dangerous? How can this be a monopsony if yeah. we don't even have any idea what, what the hell we're doing? That's literally their defense. And yeah, it's, it's, it's insane. I've heard them. I, I read them yeah. where they said that they didn't know. I don't know. We don't know how much money goes into the, like, like no into, into yeah. the marketing for this. We don't know how much money now, goes into the publishing. Yeah. yeah, I think there's there's two things here. One is that Jim is correct, but it's not specific to publishing, which is you should never trust any numbers that are coming out of a CEO's mouth during an antitrust lawsuit. Like, why, you know, honestly, why would you? I, I could extrapolate that to any numbers, honestly, because <laughs> any... statistics are so easy to, to fudge. Oh, absolutely. Take, you know, but... no one's going to, I mean, Warren Buffett's the only guy alive who can actually read any of these income statements and make any, draw any sense from them. And he doesn't invest in these companies. So it's like, well, <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> these aren't healthy companies from a standpoint of value investing and long-term success. You cannot so. usually tr trust uh, short traders. They're the ones who found Enron. They kept going around being like, I don't understand yeah. how it works. It's like, ah, it does not. Um, so I know we're talking I, I about, say, I know we're, sorry, go ahead. It's perfectly reasonable that almost any company, including the Fortune 500 companies, has no idea what's going on with their numbers at any time. Like I, I worked in analytics for a large company. It's, it's very bad. It's so bad. So I know we were talking a lot about like book selling, publishing and marketing, but um, 
and we mentioned briefly Brandon Sanderson. Brandon Sanderson actually re responded to the statements that the CEOs said about him in his own podcast, which is his podcast isn't about book marketing or publishing, but he he and Dan Wells on a recent episode talked about that. And he talked about how ridiculous that statement is. Like he basically said, they're telling me, they're saying that I am the threat because I'm an indie author that I did this. And literally he goes, not to toot his own horn, but he's like, literally no one else can do this. $40 million, like no, what other indie author can come up with $40 million? It's right. like, this is, this is a special unique case and he said, the, the question that the publishers should be asking themselves is, how come we can't do this too? Right. Yeah, I think what's what's interesting to, to pick up on uh, with their wording of using indie authors in this case is that is a term that to them, as well as the people suing them, the government, the Department of Justice, means Amazon, right? These, these can be conflated. Mm -hmm. these, these terms are the same to them. Um, and if you remember, uh, the Department of Justice is also filed suit against Amazon, as well as the other publishers filed suit against Amazon. So there's been a whole thing. And I guess it's the Department of Justice was against Apple. But the whole thing is these numbers are these terms are conflated enough so that by saying indie authors, the government goes, oh, I know. OK, you know, yeah, wait, we don't like them either. <laughs> so it's just a way to ingratiate them to their side so they can win their case. It's crazy, yeah. man. It's it's wild. It's wild. Wow. Wow. Well, we've got a couple minutes left. We've got two stories. I'm going to make an executive decision and pick one that's a little bit lighter, right? So I'm going to, I saw this thing. I am a big fan of just, as you know, as I'm a big fan of fewer distractions when I write. Like I use, I figured out how to put Microsoft Word in a special mode. I use apps on my computer to block stuff. Um, Scrivener has a distraction-free mode. But beyond that, there are people who use devices that are it might as well be a typewriter, but <laughs> captures the data electronically, right? Some of them don't have a backspace key. There's certainly no whiteout. Yeah, no back. Pippa's eyes went wide. Yeah, there's no backspace key on some of these things. Yeah, so there's you might have seen them at some author conferences or on Instagram. The, the, the uh, Alpha Smart Neo, I think, is the the most popular one because it's super old and very inexpensive. There's some new ones that are like $500 that have these fancy e-ink screens, right? Called the, the FreeWrite. But there's this new one by the company FreeWrite that has just been announced. And it's called the FreeWrite Alpha, which is a dedicated distraction-free, I'm using air quotes, despite the fact that no one can see them, um, distraction-free writing device. What do you guys feel about these? I just signed up to get alerts. I want one so bad. I'm, I'm, but I'm more like a, like I, I'm like the guy who could give a talk on productivity, um, but I'm like the least productive person I know. <laughs> like I'd be like, oh yeah, I know, I know that app. I downloaded that app, you know, and then I forgot to download it, so I downloaded it again. You know, I have all the apps. I've got all the tools. I've got all the gadgets. I know I've got everything I need to be productive. If I could just be more productive, I'd put them to good use. I use Maybe the Pomodoro like timer. The... I use my Pomodoro <laughs> timer every time I can find it. <laughs> Dude, that's me. I got a Pomodoro timer sitting here. I haven't even clicked on it in like a year, and this little app on my uh, on my on my Mac. So I'm 100. I love this thing. I do think so. So that's the joke. Like the the reality is, I was pretty um, into the idea of the Neo when I when I discovered that. 
Um, I didn't have one, but I, I, I almost got one. I tried to get one because that was a cool one. idea. Um, when you do have one, you just forgot. I probably do. <laughs> somewhere, yeah. When I started looking into it with the Neo, um, you know, this thing is, I mean, if you look at a picture of the Neo, like it just looks like it's like, it, if you turn it over, it'll be like a Casio keyboard from the eighties. I mean, that's, it just got that look to it. And um, it turns out when you, when you try to get the, 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 the words off of your Neo, you plug it into a computer and in real time, it like, well, it's not real time. I guess it's like super fast typing goes into a, a word doc. So you plug it in, turn it into a word doc. And then it just like goes, like there's no drive or disc or anything to pull out of it. I'm hoping and, and assuming that this alpha um, doesn't do that, which is why I'm excited about it. Yes. <laughs> Good news. This will sync. It'll post your file out to Dropbox or whatever. Facebook you know, directly. Yeah. Facebook. <laughs> it'll upload straight to Kindle. Oh God! <laughs> and there's no backspace. Kate. I'm, I'm, kid, I'm, I'm kidding, people. This is not there's a, a nano no rhino. Right? Not a ram, nano rhino experiment. With an ASCII art cover. Yep. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Jim, have you ever tried? Do you need distraction-free writing stuff, or how? Uh, well, I'm going to have a little bit of a dissenting opinion on this. I think the free write alpha and alpha smart and all these smart typewriters are dumb. Um, I think people will spend hundreds and thousands and millions of dollars to avoid exercising a little self-control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, no, I will absolutely. I knew, <laughs> I knew this writer who who he wrote most of his stuff on this website called Write or Die. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah, you start typing, and you're, if you take your hands off the keyboard for a few seconds, your older text starts to disappear. So you <laughs> have to literally write or... Uh, uh, you lose all your work. You lose everything you've done. And stuff like that, it's like it sounds kind of clever and fun, and the idea of a really expensive uh, typewriter sounds fun and clever. But, you know, just exercise some self-control. <laughs> Well, that is, I mean, that's a dopamine regulation thing, and depending on how your brain is structured, might not work. On the other hand, I have one of these, and it is a paper notebook that I write in with a pen. Yeah, and I mean, it that, does not have the internet. <laughs> so, that, like, that, that's the thing I do because I don't want to just send me a link. I want one of those. I know. Okay. Um, I will sell you one of mine for like $250. Hmm. Much that cheaper. one actually that one actually does go into a word processor real time when you're time to transfer the text. <clears throat> yeah, well, see, that's the other thing. You get like one built-in editing round. Well, Neil Gaiman writes all of his first drafts in a like a like in a notebook. Like so, I know it's disgusting. I'm throwing in my mouth a little bit. My hand would be cramped on like the second mm -hmm. page. Yeah. Thankfully, when I was in AP English, I went on a ski trip and I broke both my thumbs because I'm that good uh, of a skier. And so I had casts on both my thumbs and I, I had to learn how to write like this because my teacher wouldn't let me off the hook. So like my thumb would be up and I'd, I'd have to write. So I still hold a pen like that. There's a special my... pen you can get that, mm -hmm. that does that. Too. Well, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. We didn't have access to special pen stores. <laughs> so I used a regular old ghetto There's pen. There's a place called Amazon. Have you heard of it? <laughs> no, not, when, not when I was in middle school and high school. <laughs> um, it was still a rainforest back then. So yeah, I learned how to write, but my hand doesn't get tired now, which is great, but I don't write anything longer than like my name on anything. I don't think I could even write a check if I had to these days. Hmm. Uh, look, here's the deal. Well, I mean, I agree with Jim. Um, if the issue is you have, you know, Nick Thacker um, disease 
where you you look stunning uh, and you're super handsome, but you just can't get anything done because you love these productivity apps and everything, then yeah, this isn't going to be the, this isn't the savior, right? This isn't the thing you've been waiting for. Um, but to me, it, it, it scratches the itch of, you know, the people that like the really clacky, I hate these stupid shitty keyboards, but there's people are like infatuated with these stupid keyboards. Um, if this thing looks cool, it's sleek, you know, it's got a little, it's got a bigger window. So instead of just seeing one line, you can see like four, <laughs> which I guess is better. Um, it looks cool. I think there's something to it about the, you know, just the, the sleekness of it that that actually helps my productivity. I mean, a lot of people have success with these these types of devices. Um, other people have like a dedicated laptop that doesn't have or that has all the apps taken off, or they have um, they write on a tablet that doesn't have data. It like has Wi Fi if you're in the in the house, but it's not going to have so they they can take it somewhere without and by not connecting, they're not always don't feel like they're always on. So I guess it's I mean, I totally understand, Jim, people who are like superior like you can like really like <laughs> dial in. Wait, 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 wait. Here's no, 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 you have figured out whatever it takes. So you no longer have to require willpower. No, you no longer have to use willpower, right? But when you try something new, you have to use willpower for a while. So the thing is that a lot of us, I'll say, like need willpower in certain areas, but it only lasts so long. Willpower only lasts so long. It wears out. It's an emotionally, mentally taxing. So a device like this can allow you to outsource the willpower. It can like, you can, I don't know if I'm out at a coffee house and I have this thing that can't connect to anything, then there's there's no reason to even use willpower. And here's here's my argument. You spend $300 for a typewriter that that can't connect to the internet, but wherever you are, you're still going to have your phone in your pocket. So it's not like the internet is gone. At any time, you could reach in your pocket and take out your phone and have the internet. At any time, you could produce a distraction, even blah, if it's not blah, available blah, on the blah, keyboard. Blah, 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 <laughs> Yeah, but here's the deal. I don't uh, – there are some people. I know Michael Larone um, has has written an entire book on his phone with his thumbs. Um, I could never do – I would rather chew my thumbs off and die. Um, or break them on a ski trip. Break them on a ski trip. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to feel it because, you know, whatever. <laughs> but but I, I think there's a, a case to be made. Like this distraction-free thing is – you know, if you're like, hey, I'm just going to go to the coffee shop for a couple hours and get some writing done and you take your laptop, um, what, what Roland's talking about is true. Like willpower is a finite resource that we run out of every day. And uh, in order to build a habit, eventually we, we don't use willpower to get I don't use willpower to write my books. I use discipline. Right. Because I, I've, I've moved past the willpower phase of how to do it. Now I just do it. Um, this could help me get to the phase where I'm just doing it. I'm just going to go to co- the coffee shop and grab my 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 distraction free typewriter. Uh, sure, I have my phone, but I'm not ever tempted to write a book on my phone. What my phone <laughs> is in this case is something to pull out and check Facebook and take a break for five minutes, and then, well, this is boring. Okay, put it down, and then get back to my 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 non laptop. So I don't know. I mean, I, I'm with, I, I hear both your points. I think you're both extremely wise and super handsome. Um, I am right. I'm not even sure what should, my point we is. Should, but we should I, make, I this, we should make this a video podcast. Just the listeners know that I'm, my, my, my opinion, as always, is the correct one. 
it's it's really nice of him to allow the other people on the podcast (laughs) it it really highlights how right he is about yeah it's it's sort of yeah it's like it's like like inviting you know uh somebody on uh like a talking head news show um it really just make everyone everyone else's opinion that much easier to understand um i've invited you guys on to make me look really good the job we're out of time yeah yeah (laughs) this is great so i am also going to use my one dollar to reserve my slot for this uh free write alpha but i'm just not going to admit it to anybody (laughs) especially not to jim and definitely not on on public media that will be released (laughs) hundreds of thousands of people download every week i didn't see that there was a dollar they're asking but i'll just be enjoying that extra four hundred dollars to spend on whatever i want uh well if you reserve your alpha today for one dollar it knocks one hundred dollars off your msrp of three hundred and forty nine dollars so 250 you can get this thing 250 before shipping shipping's probably another hundred (laughs) goes back up to 500 (laughs) yeah cool deal Thanks, everybody. This has been great. And um, thank you for joining us for Author News Weekly. Oh, Weekly. Yeah, I what? wondered if he was going to say some other show. <laughs> <laughs> Wizards and Wordslingers. <laughs> so where, real quick, where can you can find me at, my name is Roland Densley. You can find me at indestructibleauthor.com. And when you guys want to go around and uh, share your, your names and whereabouts. No? <laughs> Jim is shaking his head. Can't no, find me on the mysterious. internet. Can't. I am imminently Googleable. Uh, not hard to find at all. I'm still working on. I want to. I want just Nick. If you just type Nick into Google, uh, Nickelodeon shows up. But I'm, I'm working on getting myself to be that number one spot. So talk to Kevin Tomlinson. He was able to get. Oh, talk to Kevin Tomlinson. He was able to get D to D to show up at the top of Google when, you know. When before, when the name itself is drafted digital. So I'm sure he can help you, Nick. Yeah. Uh, okay. I don't like that guy. Um, I have two pen names, Moira Katzen and Natalie Gray. We'll put links in the in the show thing. Between that and my name being Philippa, I'm just not all that easy to Google. Once you find <laughs> one of them, though, if you can spell any one of the three, then it starts to get easier. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Great. Well, thanks, everybody. Sweet. We'll see you next week. Bye. Next week.